So we just came back last night from Israel. And of course, uh, we took a great group of folks with us. And yet, um, the majority of you did not go on the trip. So we thought we would bring the Israel trip to you today. And we wanted to just give you a little uh, taste. Thank you. I, th- I think you'll like it. Uh, uh, we wanted to kind of just give you a little taste of um, the trip we took and uh, the land itself. So we've got a number of um, pictures. We're going to just scroll through the pictures and we're going to talk about uh, some of the different sites and some of the different things that happened there. Um, I know from the first service that people really enjoyed that. So uh, Cheryl and I are going to do that together with you this morning. And we hope you're encouraged. So we'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, both the you know historical aspects of the sites and then a little bit of personal encouragement that comes from some of the places as well. So um, we began the trip. So this is the uh, city of Joppa. Uh, today it's called Jaffa. It's just south of Tel Aviv. It's uh, Tel Aviv, Yafo is the, is the area. And... Um, this city is the city that uh, Jonah would have uh, sought to flee from the call of God from this city. And it's also the, the place where Peter uh, would have been uh, at, in the home of Simon the Tanner where he had uh, the vision of the sheet coming down and, and all of those things that happened that preceded his going to Caesarea. So uh, this was this is the beginning of the trip. So this is our first stop here at uh, Joppa. So if we go to the next slide, we just see uh, access here to the old city. So this is sits on just a little uh, street with a harbor. Uh, like I would almost be in the in the harbor from the distance that I'm standing from that now. So that takes you up to the old city. And then going to the next uh, picture, this is where we begin. You can see the Mediterranean in the background. And so we began the tour with uh, talking about the city of Joppa, talking about the events that happened there and, um, and zeroing in specifically, talking about Jonah, but then more specifically zeroing in on Peter there in the house of Simon the Tanner where he's called to go to Caesarea and this is where the gospel is going to transition to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius there. So the next uh, picture will take us to Caesarea. Now that so, was about a 33-mile 30, uh, distance. Right, so, so Peter would have walked it. We did it by bus. We did it by bus, yes. Uh, so look at this. This is a stone that was uncovered. And now the next picture will show you more clearly what it's written on that stone. So the top line is a reference to Tiberius. Tiberius is the emperor at the time. And then look at the second name. I think you can probably figure out what that is. That's Pontius Pilate. And he is the uh, governor of Judea. Now, here's the amazing thing about this stone. Um, For many, many years, critics said... Uh, you know, they often say that the Bible is not reliable historically, 
They even would say, you know, many of these people never even existed. And Pontius Pilate was one of them that they said didn't exist in history. There's no other record of him outside of the New Testament. So this is something that was made up by the New Testament writers. And lo and behold, they found this stone there in Caesarea with Pilate's uh, name engraved in it and the very years of his governorship, which fit exactly with what the New Testament says. So it's such a fascinating discovery. I love to see that, and I thought you would like that too. Now, in the next slide, uh, we are now, we're at Caesarea, and this is the hippodrome that has been uncovered in probably the last five years. So Cheryl and I started going to Israel in 1981 together. She went before that. Um, None of this was there. Well, it was there. It was just buried under uh, tons and tons and tons of sand. So we didn't know it was there. So in the past five years, they've excavated this. And this is the place where the chariot races would have taken place there in Caesarea. Now, just over to the left behind the stadium seating there is uh, where the, the palace of Herod would have been built. And uh, Herod was a master builder. He was amazing. Uh, There's probably no one even in the modern world that could top top him as an architect and a builder. What was uh, really interesting too is he turned this, you you see there are breakers right there, but he made this a harbor for ships and he did it by taking these barges and filling them with um, sediment from um, Mount Vesuvius and then sinking the ships. And doing one barge on top of a barge until he had this wall in the ocean. I mean, that it's just phenomenal. But he created this, and then you actually, if you would walk to the right, you would see the port, and it had all these garages, so to speak, storage rooms, that they've just uncovered, these storage rooms. So during the time of um, Cornelius, and then Philip was later there, and his daughters were, um, they prophesied, and they lived in Caesarea, and Paul came and visited uh, Philip and his family on the way to Jerusalem, on his last trip to Jerusalem. Um, but what is interesting is you realize this was a very sophisticated city. It's amazing. So, so this is the place where Cornelius would have been in Caesarea, and because he was um, the head of the Roman uh, military there, uh, he would have probably lived right in this area here. And um, this is where Paul was imprisoned. And this is where Paul was uh, imprisoned and stood a trial before King Agrippa. And so many, many things took place here. Now, notice the picture of me. There's three pictures taken of me here. And Every one of them, my hand is doing this or this or something. Because and, that's so Brian to be that demonstrative. You've seen and, that. And, but here's the crazy thing. If you read in Acts, when Paul stands before Agrippa, when he gets this opportunity to speak, it says, and Paul motioning with his hand said, and so I unconsciously did It was that. just an anointing. <laughs> I an felt like I was moment. Paul right yeah. there. <laughs> Don't you wish. So that's, uh, so that's what's happening there. All right, let's, let's go to the next. Um, and here's, this is a view from the other side. So now that's where we were sitting over there. Now this is from the, the ocean is just behind us here, the Mediterranean. In fact, down there is where the storage rooms are. But the, the city itself still hasn't uh, been uncovered. This would have been like the, more, the market, the general area, mm-hmm. the elite 
area. Okay, move on. These were famous people that were on the tour. <laughs> These are the backs of our grandchildren. Uh, you'll see more of them here. To the right is Evelyn that you prayed for who had heart surgery when she was um, six days old. So she's just our little miracle, our only granddaughter, and she is so full of life. And Judah, he's in the middle. He's the oldest. He's nine. Now, notice he has a Bible in his hand. Now, this isn't staged. It's not like we said, hey, hold this Bible so we can get this picture of you. Because we want our grandchildren <laughs> to look like they're really spiritual. <laughs> but he really uh, knows his Bible, and he would talk to his brother and sister about you know, some of the different sites and some of the things happen. So it's re really cute for us to And they listen better to that. him than they did to Grandpa. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go to the next slide. And here's Evelyn and I. There's a beautiful mosaic that's on the floor. And this is where um, Herod had his beautiful palace area. So I was just pointing out the mosaic to uh, Evelyn, who likes all things pretty. And so she was, she was enjoying that. All right, next one. Uh, this, is our, this is our bus driver. And his name is Avi. And he's just a wonderful guy. And each morning, he wanted to start the morning with a song. And so the first morning, he broke out his accordion. And he did, what is it, sing hallelujah? That was the second morning. I think this might have been Hava Nagila. No, that was the second morning. Oh, that might have been the third morning. <laughs> okay. There are a lot of mornings. Okay. But he did do sing hallelujah uh, one morning, which was, you know, sing hallelujah to the Lord. And what was amazing is that song a girl uh, wrote um, up at a family camp, a camp that we did in Idlewild Pines in 1972. And she went to my dad and she said, you know, Chuck, the Lord gave me this song and I want to teach it to you. So my dad said, all right, let's see. And so she said, well, there's a guy's part and then there's a girl's part. So I'll teach you the guy's part. So my dad memorized it with her. And that evening, um, we would sit outside in an amphitheater at Idlewild Pines. And my dad and this young woman taught the whole camp that song, Sing Alleluia to the Lord. So they taught it to all of us. Now, fast forward, you know, how many years later? And here's this Jewish man playing Sing Alleluia to the Lord in Israel on a bus for the Americans not knowing that I was there the first time it was sung. So for me, it was just like glorious. So anyway, that was cool. All right, let's move on. Bye, Avi. Uh, this is a highlight of the trip right here. The greatest moment when Evelyn hurt her knee and Grandpa had to carry her up Mount Arbel. And Arbelle. you can tell she's already being healed by the smile. <laughs> it's Israel. All right, let's go to the next one. And here are Cheryl and I. So we're, we're up on Mount Arbel. Let's go to the next. And now to the next one. So Mount Arbel, Mount Arbel isn't mentioned in the New Testament anywhere specifically. But when you read about Jesus going away to a mountain to pray and things, it's highly uh possible that this is the place he went because you can just see right on the edge you can see the edge of the Galilee right there just at that edge you're basically looking at where Capernaum is there on the edge and this is the most amazing uh, cliff kind of a hill that looks out over the whole Sea of Galilee 
And so you could see where Jesus would go there to pray. You could see where he would go there with his disciples and, and teach them and, and share with them. Um, what I like to do from this spot is talk about how the Galilee region, um, we don't always realize this when we read our Bibles, but the Galilee region was predominantly pagan. It was not Jewish. The western shore of the Galilee had Jewish communities along it, but everything else in the region was pagan, uh, very pagan, uh, Greek and Roman. And um, so this was the land that Isaiah referred to as the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And I always like to point out how Jesus, he comes and he sets up his base of operation. He basically just sets it up in Satan's backyard, so to speak. Uh, And so it's in this area of the Galilee that we know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they primarily deal with the Galilean ministry of Jesus, where John focuses more on the Jerusalem ministry of Jesus. But uh, all of those things are so easily... Uh, seen from that location right there. Okay, let's move on to the next. So that's Mount Arbel on the left. That is, that's the view from, we're in a boat, taking a picture of another boat, so you can see the kind of boat we're in, and we're looking at Mount Arbel there. So you can see how that cliff is, is pretty sheer, and uh, there's actually a trail. You can hike up it uh, I think I'm probably too old to do that now, but uh, I would have done I it. I am. <laughs> I would have done it when I was younger. Um, but there's a lot of interesting history there that has to do with uh, the zealots and the revolt against the Romans and the battles that took place. So it's a pretty fascinating uh, spot. What's interesting too, and um, we'll get to a little bit in Capernaum, but they found a <laughs> boat that dates back to the time of Jesus, to Peter's time, and it's a fishing boat. And it was preserved in the mud. And when the waters receded, uh, because um, much of the drinking water now is taken from the Jordan, the, I, sorry, from the Galilee, one third uh, of the country is fed because of the Galilee. So that's greatly reduced the Galilee. Well, when the drought happened, they discovered this boat in the mud. They've preserved it. You can go and see it. They call it Peter's boat. It could be. It could very well be Peter's boat. It might not be. It might be James or John or Zebedee's, but it definitely dates back to the time of Jesus. And so you get a real visual of what the uh, the boats look like in Jesus' time. It's really amazing. So like I said, we're on a boat. So if we go to the next picture, you can just see a little... Uh, so that's us on the boat. So as a tour, we go on, we actually had two boats. So one and the other, or the other boat comes alongside of us. And we just have a time of worship out there. We had a little teaching and Pastor Richard Semino, who was with us on the trip, he taught on the storm that came on the Sea of Galilee. Now, when we went out on the lake, it was perfectly calm. It was perfectly glassy. And, you know, people were like, wow, how could there be a storm you know, like the Bible talks about on this body of water. There was particularly one man that was saying all this. Could there really be a storm? But But by the time the teaching was over, the wind, I mean, literally just kicked up and pretty soon the boat was sort of rocking a little bit, you know, and- uh, There were white caps all over the sea. I said, well, you just had an example of what can happen out here. But I did share with them that we have been- in Israel when the, the waves in that sea were basically about eight to 10 feet. 
Now, the, the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and eight miles across, but it's the second, well, it is the lowest freshwater body in the world. It's 700 feet below sea level. Uh, the next lowest level is just straight down that African rift to um, the Dead Sea, which is 1,400 feet. So because of the depth and because of the way the hills surround it, these winds will come through and kick up waves in there like you can't even believe. So uh, they didn't get big that day, but the, the wind definitely kicked in. trying to push the in. other boat. They had trouble just getting the other boat pushed off from Mars, too. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Okay, let's go to the next one. Now, uh, we are here at, that's a Jordan River. And we're about to baptize a number of people there in the Jordan. So let's just uh, go through to the last baptismal picture. And this one here, we'll pause here. Okay, we did not, we did not induct anyone into a cult. They make you put those robes on if you want to be baptized. A few years ago, um, I wore one of those robes and Ray Bentley. And somebody took a picture of us and we literally looked like cult leaders. So... I just refused. I'm not wearing one of those robes. So they don't like the fact that I don't wear one, but I just said, you know, the people getting baptized will wear one, but I'm not going to wear one. So, but this is an amazing spot. So this is the Jordan. This is just very close to the Galilee. So, you know, the, the, the Jordan flows into the Galilee and then it flows out of the Galilee. And so here we're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But this spot is is very special spot. This is the only place on the Jordan where you actually have like a baptismal site, like a proper site like you see here. And tens of thousands of Christians from all over the world and from every denomination get baptized here. But there's a, a connection uh, with this site back to our church here. So, Cheryl. So in 1972, on Chuck Smith's very first trip to Israel, and I was there being his daughter, I was 12 years old, and my dad said, hey, honey, how'd you like to get baptized again in the Jordan River? Because if I baptize you, then others will want to. So we pulled the bus over to the side of the road, and my dad and I made our, our way down this muddy cliff, down into the Jordan River, and I was baptized a second time. I've actually been baptized three times all by my dad. I don't know, maybe the first one didn't take. So... Anyway, I was baptized in the Jordan, and then other people felt brave enough if a 12-year-old can do it, they can get baptized too. But it was really slippery. It was very treacherous. There was no place to change. People were changing in the bus. It was hard to stand outside. So my dad, about uh, 20 years later, got the chance to meet with the prime minister of Israel, Menachem Begin. And Menachem Begin wanted to get together with my dad and thank my father for his support of Israel. And he said, do you know is there anything I can do for you? And my dad said, well, actually there is. I noticed there's this place along the Jordan River that would make a fantastic baptismal site. And um, I'm willing to pay for it. My church will pay for it um, because you could get a lot of revenue for Israel. You could make money because Christians want to be baptized in the Jordan like the Messiah, Jesus. So if you built a baptismal site, it would be good for relations between evangelical Christians and Israel. Plus, you could make money. And uh, Menachem said, I'll look into it. So my father and Menachem Begin continued to have communication. Uh, Israel purchased this plot of land right next to the Jordan. And Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, paid for it. Paid for this baptismal site. 
My dad had one requirement, that the name Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa would never be mentioned. There'd be no plaques and there'd be no glory to Chuck Smith because he wanted every denomination worldwide to be able to use this baptismal site. So when you go there, there's about seven coves like this with places for people to sit and all these different churches worshiping Jesus and being baptized in the Jordan. Uh, The group next to us was German, but they were speaking in tongues. Um, Amazing. There was an Indian group there from India um, doing a baptismal. And um, the only, um, they have, the only clues that Chuck Smith had anything to do with it is when you walk in, there's a picture of my dad baptizing somebody on a poster. And there's an olive tree. I think it's next to Benny Hinn's olive tree that says, you know, Chuck Smith planted this tree. But as I was looking there, I was thinking, my, you know, Lord, would you just tell dad what they've done with the place? Would you just let him know all the people that are being baptized here? Because that was my dad's heart for the kingdom of God, for the whole kingdom of God worldwide. And so I just thought, hallelujah. Absolutely hallelujah. All right. Okay, next. Okay, so, so right here. If and that's you, my dad's grandson right there. If you, if you, can, you can see the, the dome of a church through, can you see it through the trees there? So this is the Mount of Beatitudes. And this is a Catholic site. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church owns many sites around the area there. So they own this site. And that, that's a church to commemorate the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and so forth. So we're just outside of the property there. We, sometimes we go and walk through and use the, use the property to do our teaching. But we decided this time that we were going to go and just sit out in a field, kind of. So that's what we're doing there. Char's just doing a little bit of teaching on the Beatitudes. And right behind him, and so everybody's looking out at the Sea of Galilee as he's sharing. So next uh, picture. Um, This is, now all all of these things are in the, the general vicinity. So this church is up on a hill and then Capernaum is down on the, See itself. So this is just, uh, we threw this in just so you would know that we now have transitioned to Capernaum. So let's go to the next. Um, so here we are with the Sea of Galilee behind us in Capernaum. And on this side, there's a synagogue that uh, dates back to the fourth century, but underneath it is the original first century synagogue where Jesus himself would have visited, taught, uh, spoke about the bread of life, healed people, cast out demons, all of those things would have happened there. So um, Cheryl is here talking about, kind of just talked about what was happening around Capernaum, right? Right. I'm holding Char's microphone too. I know it looks like a spiritual moment, but I'm actually holding the microphone so everyone can hear him sing. But um, the interesting thing is there's a little beach right there that have the rocks on it. And this would have been the place where Jesus went to teach and the people all came out and they crowded so much and pressed in that he said to Peter, let me borrow your boat. And Jesus got on the front of the boat and you can see because it's very hot that in that area. And you can almost see Jesus sitting on the bow of the boat, you know, with his feet in the water and he's speaking to the people on the land. 
And then as soon as he finishes speaking, you know, they would pull the boat up onto the beach. And he said to Peter, launch out into the deep and cast out your net for a draught of fish. And Peter, being a Galilean experienced fisherman, knew that everything that Jesus was suggesting was absolutely wrong because fishermen fished at night towards the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is going against all convention. It's it's in the day. And he's saying to go out into the deep where there aren't the fish and to catch fish. And Peter says there, you know, Lord, we fished all night and there was nothing and we're exhausted. Nevertheless, at your word, I will do it. So Peter launches out, he lets down the net and we're told that it was filled with fish, so full that they had trouble bringing it in because the nets began to tear. So they called another boat out to help bring in this huge haul of fish. And it would have been right there. And it's on that shore that that Peter fell down on his knees and said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus, I'm not the type of person you're looking for. You're obviously divine. There's something amazing about you. God is with you. I'm a fisherman. But Jesus said, Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And then from there, in that town is Peter's house. They believe that they actually have uncovered Peter's house. I don't know how they know that that particular house is Peter's, but nevertheless, they've uncovered a house they believe is Peter's. And that would have been after Jesus went into the synagogue, cast out the demon-possessed man, uh, the demon out of the demon-possessed man. I... I have jet lag. Anyway, he went to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law was ill and Jesus took her by the hand and he healed her and she got up and she served him. And that evening we're told right after this, the Shabbat was over and so as night was falling, the house was surrounded by all the maimed the tormented, the sick, the demon-possessed. I I think of it as night of the zombies. Like if you opened your front door and there's like, help, you know, that would be a little daunting. But Jesus went out and he healed them all. He healed every single person. And then after that, he went up into the mountains by himself to pray. So Capernaum is just rich. It's just rich with the stories. This is also the place where um, Jesus was teaching in a house. And Luke tells us that the power of the Lord was present with Jesus to heal. And it was overly crowded with men who had come down the religious elite from Judea to check out Jesus because they had heard about the miracles. And so it was so crowded in this house that no one could get close. And four men came with their friend on a gurney, so to speak. And when they realized that they couldn't get to Jesus, these audacious men climbed up onto the roof and began to remove the tiles and lower their friend down right in front of Jesus as he was teaching. And Jesus commended these men for their audacious faith, you know, because they were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. And he commended, it says, when he saw the faith, of his friends, he looked at the man and said, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the men from Judea said, who is this blasphemer that he says he can forgive sins? No one but God can forgive sins. Jesus, knowing what they were saying and their thoughts said, 
Which is easier, to say to this man, rise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? But I intentionally said this, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turned to the man and said, take up that bed and walk. So I told the people, my friends, I said, if you see any of these red tiles, these little stones, they're from the tiles that would have been on the roofs of the houses. Perhaps the piece that you picked up was one of the ones that was torn off to get the paralytic to Jesus. I mean, it's just a thought, right? But the idea of that's how audacious we're supposed to be in our prayers and getting our friends. And we can do that, right? We can go boldly into the throne of grace and say, hey, help Ernie, you know? So anyway, that's just our, some of our takeaways from Capernaum. So next. And that's uh, the Sea of Galilee. Next. And as, see, across the side, that's the eastern side. So here we are. This, we're right there where Cheryl was just talking about. And so we're looking across to the eastern side. And that's what's called the Golan Heights. You've probably heard of the Golan Heights. We've been in the news recently. Uh, President Trump uh, acknowledged them as being part of Israel. It's this, you know, big political geopolitical debate for a long time there. But that's the Golan Heights. And then back over this way as well. But, but that's the side of the sea where Gadara would be. Remember the demon-possessed man who they went and he was in the tombs, he was cutting himself and all of that. So they would have found him on that uh, eastern side of the sea. Also on that side would have been where Jesus fed the multitude mm-hmm. of 6,000. And then he came over to Capernaum mm-hmm. when they realized that he had gone over. Remember, uh, he walked eight miles across the sea that night. And they couldn't find him, so they came all the way, any way they could, back to Capernaum and said, do you have any more of that fish and bread? Mm -hmm. And so that's the place, too. All right, next. So this is a really um, kind of a dark uh, picture here. Uh, This is a, well, this is Megiddo, and this is a city that Solomon built as a a fortress city for the, the part of the country. And right in the center... So the city was a Canaanite city before. Now remember, the Canaanites are the people that God drove out of the land with Joshua. He said, I'm gonna kick these people out because of their wickedness. Don't do the things they did. One of the things they did was they offered human sacrifices. They offered their children on the altars. It's that, that round thing I pointed out. In the out. center is an altar that they would have offered their children to the, to the false gods of, of Canaan on. So it's, it's really kind of a creepy thing. But you know, I took a picture of it and posted it because I thought, you know, this is hum- this is just human nature. This people are are nobody. It's it's just the same from generation to generation. We have our own version uh, today through abortion. We have our own version of of children being sacrificed to the idols of of sex and these kinds of things. So nothing's changed over the centuries, and it was for this reason that God destroyed the Canaanites, drove them out of the land and brought the Israelites in. The tragedy is that the Israelites began to repeat the same things that the Canaanites did and God eventually drove them out of the land as well. So let's go to the next picture. So this is one of my favorite sites in all of Israel. It's hard to see right now exactly why, but that is the ground of a first century synagogue in the town of Magdala. 
Now, this is why this is so significant. Now, like I mentioned a minute ago, in Capernaum, you have a synagogue that exists there, or the remains of one anyway, but it dates back to the fourth century. What they did in those times is they built cities literally on top of each other. So in some places, you can get down to the very bedrock. Some places you can get down to uh, the time of David, to the time of Abraham, uh, to the time of Jesus. This is one of those places where you are at ground zero. And here's the, here's the thing that's astounding. The gospels tell us that Jesus went all throughout Galilee preaching in the synagogues. So what does that mean? That means Jesus preached in this very room right here. And to me, that's like gives me shivers every time I go there and I see that. Now, that little box is a replica of what they found there. Uh, so again, all the years that we were going to Israel, Magdala, nobody knew any of the details about it. It wasn't, they hadn't excavated it. So now that they've excavated, they found the synagogue and that box was where they would probably roll out the scroll and the person would, would uh, you know, sit there near it and read from the scroll and teach and um, every synagogue would have a box like that. It's supposed to represent the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, the markings on it were uh, representative of the temple. But remember, Magdala is the town of Mary Magdalene. And so this is the town. This is the synagogue. This is where she came from. Now, I want you to see the next picture. So this is a mosaic. There, so... So this site is, a, again, it's a Roman Catholic site. And they've built a church on this site in the back that's dedicated to the ministry of Jesus uh, toward women. And they've got these beautiful mosaics in these various rooms. And this mosaic is made of 160,000 tiles. It was made, like all the other ones, uh, by an artist from... Uh, Santiago, uh, Chile. And this is a depiction of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Now, you know, many people think, not because the Bible says so, but many people assume that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. There's nothing in the Bible that says she was a prostitute. What the Bible does tell us, though, is that she was demon-possessed. She was possessed by seven demons, as a matter of fact. And in this picture, I don't know if you can see, but the artist has these little demonic creatures there falling off of her and sort of haunting her in the background. And then at her feet, you have a rock that looks like a skull. And then you have this gulf between her and Jesus. And basically, Jesus is inviting her across the gulf and out of the grip of Satan uh, to come and follow him. And it's, I just thought it's such a moving uh, picture. Um, I just really wanted you guys to see it. So it's a beautiful depiction of how Jesus set this woman free from the power of the devil. All right, let's go on to the next. Oh, really quick, too, about Magdala, too. It was um, a place where they had a salt factory, and all the fish from the Galilee would be salted, and in that way preserved, and they were sent as a delicacy all the way to Rome, and uh, to Jerusalem, but all the way to Rome, and it was considered a delicacy. So when Jesus was talking about, you are the salt of the earth, the people there around the Galilee would know exactly what that meant. It meant you are a preserving factor. You are a 
delicacy. But if you lose that flavor, you're good for nothing. And here's a place where that fish was actually salted, dried out, preserved, and sent all over the world as a delicacy. And you know, another thing about these towns, they're along a road that's called the Via Maris. And the Via Maris is the way of the sea. And the road that went along the side of the Sea of Galilee went all the way up into Damascus. And then from there, you could go all the way over to even as far as Turkey and and eventually across into Europe. So what Jesus did do is he situated himself on this road that would have been um, filled with merchants and people uh, traveling back and forth all the time so that the word about him would spread not just throughout the land, but literally potentially spread throughout the whole world. And going back to what Cheryl was saying about the fish, remember Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Zebedee, the father of Peter and James, they are James and John, they were fishermen, and they probably had a very lucrative business. And from the fact that John seems to indicate that he knows the high priest, uh, some have speculated that the high priest probably knew of John because of the family business. They probably got their fish from them as well. So it's all very interesting. It's very all fishy. Right. All right, let's uh, go on. That's uh, yours truly and our faithful guide, Ronnie Cohen. Uh, some of you guys have maybe, uh, maybe you remember Ronnie. He was here a few years ago. But Ronnie is, uh, he's a great friend. And I wanted to show this picture because uh, he's such a, a wonderful illustration of God's grace. He was born and raised in New York City, um, ended up in Israel as a young guy in his 20s. After ended up Vietnam. In, after Vietnam, ended up in all these, you know, Israeli wars and things. But through a long process, he came to faith in Jesus. And his story is so powerful. Um, every time we go on a, on a tour, I always at some point, I say, Ronnie, I want you to tell your story. And he'll, he'll take two or three days, kind of walk us through the, his story. But in the end, he just comes down to where um, it, was, it just became undeniable to him that Jesus really was the Messiah. And so it's, it's a really powerful story. So anyway, there's Ronnie Cohen. Cohen actually means priest in Hebrew. So he's like, hey, be nice to me. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, he takes advantage of that priest thing. Yeah, he does. Okay, so this is up in the area of Dan. And this is amazing because this is the very altar that was built by Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, remember, there's David, then there's Solomon. And under Solomon, the kingdom splits. So at the end of Solomon's life, Rehoboam becomes the king of Judah, and Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern tribes. Now, God gave him this. But he was afraid that if the people in the north went back to Jerusalem to worship, they would just want to stay down there so he built uh, a whole religious system with a priesthood, with a temple, with everything. He built it all here and put a golden calf here and uh, actually kind of just followed up on the, the, the pagan practices that were already uh, in the land from the period of the judges. So Cheryl, she taught a little bit there. So where, where the metal is, though, you can actually see the platform that the golden calf was um, placed on. I mean, it's incredible. But 
Dan was given an area in the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 19, they're given an area that's in the southwest of Israel. Um, it would have been what is now Ashkelon, uh, that area right on the coast, a very fertile plain. But it says that they weren't able to conquer um, their enemies there. And so what they do is they send 10 spies through Israel to find a place um, for the rest of the tribe because they don't like what God's given them. They think it's too hard. They want someplace nicer. So they get these 10 spies to go. And these 10 spies happen on this house of a man named Micah. You'll find this story in Judges. And Micah is an idolater who has his own priest who happens to be the grandson of Moses. His name is Jonathan. And he uses this priest. Well, these 10 men come from the tribe of Dan and they say, be our priest uh, because we want someplace other than what God has given us. And they see these, these Phoenicians that have settled in this area and they go and they get the rest of the tribe, 600 men. They grab this priest, Jonathan, and these idols. And they come up here, which would have been the northeast corner of the allotment of Israel. And they conquered the Phoenicians and they took over this area and they set up even then their own idolatry. And if you have read the book of Judges, you know the main scripture that summarizes the whole book is there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they determined how they were going to worship God, even though the tabernacle was all the time there. So this became a center of idolatry. Yeah. So it's a fascinating site. And right in this area too, there's, the, there's a gate that dates back 4,000 years. To Abraham. And they call it now the gate of Abraham because when Abraham left what we know today as Iraq and made his way into the promised land, it's almost certain that he would have walked through that gate. And so they found this gate. It's, it's absolutely amazing. It's the oldest arch gate in the world. And it's right there in uh, Dan. All right. Next, and here's the beautiful Cheryl in her hat. And I know she doesn't want us to linger long on this photo, so let's uh, move on to the next one. <laughs> this is the area. Today, this is called Banyas. And Banyas is a, an Arabic um, mispronunciation of Panyas. Panyas was um, the area where the god... The Greek god Pan was worshipped here, going back to the time of uh, Alexander the Great. And this is, but then it later became known as Caesarea Philippi. So when you're reading in Matthew chapter 16, and you read that Jesus took uh, the disciples and he went to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is where they came. Now, I want you to see that, that background there. Notice that big, massive rock. That, that's all just a big rock. And then you can see the etchings in the, in the rock where they put the idols. And then to the left, you can see an opening. That's a cave. And back in ancient times, they would take the sacrifices and they would throw them into that cave. The water used to run through there. And they called that cave the Gates of Hades. They, they believed that that was the entrance, entrance into the underworld. So with all of that, let's go to the next uh, one and here this is the headwaters of the Jordan so the the water that rock that we just saw the water's coming out from underneath that let's go to one more and so 
there's me. And uh, so right there, we're teaching on Matthew 16 because it's at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asked the disciples, who do, who do people say that I am? And they said, oh, they say you're Elijah. They say you're Jeremiah. They say you're one of the prophets. Jesus said, who do you say that, that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're right. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father in heaven revealed it. And, um, and then remember, Jesus said this. He said, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So it's so heavy when you're there because you realize Jesus is doing a couple of things. He's at the center of uh, idolatrous worship and he's basically staking his claim of authority over all. And the, the gates of Hades, he was basically saying that he was going to defeat death right there. The gates of Hades uh, will not prevail. And, and I think the, the, although we sometimes use that to talk about the powers of darkness fighting against the church, it probably could have that application. But what Jesus is really saying is I'm going to defeat death and death will not defeat my church. And so that all took place right there. But when he says upon this rock, of course, he's got this backdrop of this massive rock that uh, would just add to the point that he was making. All right, let's move on to the next. And here is a view of the Sea of Galilee. And you see the white on the other side. I don't know if you can tell from here. That's the city of Tiberias. So Tiberias is the only city around the Sea of Galilee. It's still a city today. This has a substantial population, but it's called Tiberias because it was named after the emperor Tiberius, who was the emperor during uh, the ministry of Jesus. So the city dates back to the time of Christ. Next. This is a place called Bethshan, but it's also called Skiath. Schiopolis, Schiopolis. And uh, this, when you read in the Gospels, you'll read about the Decapolis. Decapolis means 10 cities. It's, it, they were 10 Greek cities. This was the major city out of the 10. Now, the biblical significance is the ancient name Bethshan. This is the city where when Saul was slain with his sons on Mount Gilboa and the Philistines uh, beheaded them, they took them to Bethshan and they hung them on the wall of the city. Now there's a hill behind this here. It's a tell. A tell is a series of uh, cities stacked upon each other overgrown with grass. It just looks like a hill, but it's actually civilizations are under it. So that's Bethshan. But here at uh, Scythopolis, this would have been the chief city of the Decapolis. This was a thoroughly pagan city, just as pagan as you could possibly be with all of the idolatry that the Romans and the Greeks would engage in. And this would have been the place that the man that Jesus delivered from the demons in the tombs he said, go back and tell your family. The man wants to go with Jesus. Jesus says, no, go back and tell your friends and your family uh, what God has done for you. And it says that he went through the Decapolis spreading the message. And so he would have probably gone. This is uh, the, probably the closest of the, of the 10 cities. So he probably would have gone to this city first. So it's, it's amazing quite amazing. how preserved the frescoes are. There's pictures of lions that you can see in the floor yeah. and other animals. Yeah, let's go to the next picture. Uh, there's a marketplace here that you can see. And this, this, is, this is the theater. So we were the having theater. our teaching there. 
Uh, then uh, let's go to the next one. They also had running water in this place. So look at that column. In the eighth century, uh, there, there's an exact time and date. There was an earthquake that completely leveled the city. And so you still see um, today. Now, again, this is a place that's been uh, excavated over the years. When we first started going here years ago, there was a few columns and things laying around. But now it's absolutely amazing. It's, it was, like you're, it's almost like you're walking through a Roman city. It was mainly just the theater. Yeah. So those guys didn't break that column, even though it looks like they, they might have. All right, let's go to the next one. Oh, okay. That's me and my oldest son. Let's go to the next one. Okay, this is the spring of Herod. And this is the place where Gideon would have uh, had his army assembled and you remember the Lord took them through a process to narrow them down from 32,000 to 300 men to go fight the Midianites. And, and this is the spring. Look at that. You can hardly even tell there's water in it. The water is so crystal clear. Let's go to the next picture. Um, and there, there's an example of, so that's just flowing out of the spring and so it's a great place to go and talk about the story of Gideon and the Midianites and, you know, all, the, all that uh, happened there at that place. Next. Uh, this is the Dead Sea. And that's probably like four feet deep right there. But see, have you heard this, the, how it's impossible to sink in the Dead Sea? Well, that's an example right there of uh, you can't sink there. There's so much, there's 37% uh, salt in the Dead Sea. And with the mineral combination, when you go in the Dead Sea, you feel like you just took an oil bath. It's really kind of, doesn't Slimy. feel that good. Um, and it's, let's go to the next picture. It's one of the most deceptive uh, things you'd ever see because you're surrounded by all of this barren, just absolutely barren wilderness like that right there. That's Jordan, ancient Moab across. That's on the east side. And you come and you see this beautiful body of water and you would think, I'm going to go jump in that. I'm going to get a big drink of water. Well, if you did that, you'd die because you can't uh, drink the water. There's nothing that lives in the Dead Sea. Hence but, the name. But... The amazing thing is there's a prophecy in Zechariah that says when the Lord comes back and puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split and fresh water will flow from the, the place where Jesus sets up his throne and water will go to the Dead Sea and heal it and it will be full of fish and people will clean their nets there one day. And so it, it's really pretty amazing. Uh, the first reference to this is in the book of Genesis. In chapter 14, when you find Abraham, uh, these, these five kings, <coughs> four kings from the north, five kings, they battle each other. This is where the battle takes place. And it's full of tar pits and things like that. It mentions that in Genesis. Uh, the Romans use the asphalt from it. Uh, to pave their roads. And even today, if you go down there, you'll see there's all these sinkholes. Uh, there's a funny thing because there's a, the, the, um, the water level is diminishing tremendously. 
And uh, there's one place that was a spa that was built right on the water. And now the water's like a half a mile. It's receded a half a mile. So you see this spa, it's kind of like just sitting out in the middle of the desert. And they've got to actually get a trolley to drive you to the unrefreshing water of the Dead Sea. But it's a fascinating place. Um, Lowest place. Lowest place on the earth. That's the lowest spot in the world, 1,400 feet below sea level. All right, next. Uh, this is Rod and Jusha, and of course, you can see the background. So now we've transitioned to Jerusalem. So we come up from the Dead Sea on the road that uh, was traveled between Jericho and Jerusalem, where the story of the uh, Good Samaritan took place. And now we've arrived in Jerusalem. Nice picture of Rod and Jusha. Uh, Just a quick bit of background on those two. Um, They served in Europe for close to 20 years. They've been here. uh, Rod directed our conference center in Marietta for 15 years. They're going back to Europe. They're going back to live in Italy and minister there. So uh, Rod's actually going to be here next Sunday. He's going to share with us. So uh, you'll get to hear them and meet them. We're standing right now on the Mount of Olives overlooking Mm -hmm. Jerusalem. And what you can see right there is the East Gate that's closed up. Mm-hmm. And the road that goes down the Mount of Olives is actually the same pathway that Jesus would have taken. It's, the roads haven't changed uh, coming from the Mount of Olives in, you know, 2,000 years. They're the same roadways. Just like, you know, in London, all their roads were made by cows. It's the same way. That's why you get lost. Well, just like here going down the Mount of Olives, it's the actual road. It's the same road used. Uh, they just paved over it. So we actually, we're, we're going to walk down the Mount of Olives and make our way to the um, Garden of Gethsemane. But the East Gate is interesting because... The East Gate is interesting. Notice it, that it's, it, it's sealed. Uh, sealed. Now, it's sealed because there's a prophecy in Ezekiel uh, that talks about the East Gate being sealed and the prince sitting in the East Gate. Now, at first... At first glance, it seems like it's talking about Jesus, but actually, the more you look at it, it's probably not talking about Jesus, but it probably is talking about the time when the Lord has returned. But the Turks who built that wall, so that wall around Jerusalem uh, dates back to the 1500s, late 14, uh, early 1500s. The Turks built that wall and they sealed that gate because they heard about the Messiah coming through that gate. Not only did they seal the gate, but right in front of the gate is a cemetery. And so they figured we're going to not let the Messiah get in. We're going to put a cemetery there and he won't, you know, that that would defile you to walk through a cemetery. So he's not going to do that. But if he somehow gets around that, we're going to seal off the gate. And yet I think the Messiah will make his way there. Yeah, they don't know the story of Lazarus. (laughs) Now, an interesting thing, though, is this Mount of Olives Remember, this is the place from which Jesus ascended into heaven. So, right, I mean, of course, that shrine to the Dome of the Rock was not there at the time. The temple would have been there. But Jesus ascended from here. And the scripture says he's going to return to the same place that he left from. So Jesus is going to come back to the Mount of Olives. That's where he's going to touch down and begin to... Uh, establish his kingdom from that point forward. And the same mountain that will split and the water will come from this very place and flow into the Dead Sea. Very significant. All right. 
Zusha would be really embarrassed to know that she yeah, was up she on would. the screen for that She's long. That long. Okay, let's move on to the next. Uh, that's Ronnie and I again. Uh, go ahead. Um, here we are in uh, a garden that would have been similar to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Gethsemane was on. Gethsemane means olive press. And so we are there in that vicinity of where the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would have uh, had that time of uh, prayer and anticipation. Uh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so we're talking about that right there. Let's go ahead. You also see the Dome of the Rock, which is the Muslim um, temple. This is, you see it. And what you see is it's higher than everything else, but that's because it's on a platform that Herod the Great actually built. So the Wailing Wall is actually a retaining wall. It's not a wall of the temple. It's a retaining wall that Herod built because what he did is he just kind of covered over all the uh, rubble from the temple and he built this just this flat uh, platform to build the temple on. So that's actually, you know, above ground. And then again, leveled, covered, uh, and that's the mosque of um, Omar on top of it, so... That, right. that actually, the Mosque of Omar, interestingly enough, it was taken over by the Templar Knights and at one point used as a church. So just a bit of history. Yeah, a lot of crazy history there. Let's go to the next picture, the next picture. Uh, so here we are at another one of those places where we have um, a bedrock situation. These steps are known as the Southern Steps going up to the temple area, Jesus would have walked on these steps, undoubtedly. And it could even be that uh, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated as a child, as an eight-day-old child, uh, it could be here that Simeon met them. Um, as he was looking, God had promised him that he would not die till he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so it could have been there. But what happened here every year uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles was on the final day of the feast, the priest would take these water pots and they would walk down these steps and down the hill to what's known as the Pool of Siloam. And at the Pool of Siloam, they would fill up these water pots. They would make this procession back up here. There would be probably a quarter of a million people in the city at this time. And they would go up, there'd be this massive celebration, and they would take these water pots and they would pour the water out on the stone. And it was a reminder of how God provided water out of the rock for their ancestors in the wilderness. So they were remembering that. They were celebrating that at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was on the last day, the great day of the feast, that they would pour that water out. And it was there that Jesus, in the crowd, suddenly stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And so he did that. That coincided with that ceremony that was taking place. So again, sometimes when you understand a little bit of the cultural and the historical context, it becomes even more uh, significant. Jesus just didn't stand up, you know, randomly and just say, if you're thirsty, although it was like 100 degrees right there, and if anyone would have said, are you thirsty? We would have all said yes. Uh, but he, that wasn't the context. The context was um, that ceremony that was taking place. And if you notice that the step that they're standing on right there is higher, and then it's two shorter, then it's a higher step, then two shorter, or is it it's large, then three, then um, tall, 
then three, then tall. And the reason why is they wanted everyone who was coming into Jerusalem, into the temple, which that would have been, uh, we were told there would have been three gates. Uh, The lower stones that you see, go back to Herod's time, all of Herod's stones are beveled around the edge. And everything above that's smaller is from um, Solomon, uh, the Magnificent. May Mohammed bless his beard. Um, That would have been from, um, you know, the time of the... um, the Turks, but the bigger stones that are beveled, that that goes back to Herod's temple. But it was so that they would have to go slowly so no one could race up to the temple, but they'd have to think about it as they, they went. So once you, once you walked through those doors, you were in the court area of, of the temple. The temple was probably on the other end. This is the southern end, so it's, it's probably closer to the northern right. end. And, and right on the other side, if, if you would, you know, on this side, like going towards Brian, you find what's called the um, bazaars of, of Annas, who was one of the high priests. Remember how Jesus cleaned out the temple? Well, these were some of his stalls where he was, he was actually the one who owned all the, uh, or the buyers and the sellers all paid uh, to him to make merchandise of the people coming to sacrifice. So you've got the bazaars of Annas. And so obviously they moved from the courtyard out after Jesus cleansed. But anyway, it's interesting. It's so, I mean, you're just like, Jesus is real. So cool. All right, next. Okay, let's go. Brian having a vision. Two beautiful faces right there. That was his vision. Um, Okay, this is a couple named Matt and Elizabeth. And we just threw this picture in because pray for these guys. They are a wonderful couple. They're amazing. They direct, we have a Bible college in the city of Jerusalem and they direct it. And uh, living in Jerusalem is a bit of a challenge. It's not, you know, we kind of tend to think about it as like, oh, Jerusalem, it's God's city and all that. It's probably the darkest city on the face of the earth, actually. Uh, Extremely dark. And so there's an intense spiritual battle that they themselves experience there. But they're a wonderful couple. They're from our church. And uh, so we just wanted to put them up. They're running the Bible college in Jerusalem. Yeah. I said that. Did you? Well, I've got jet lag. I didn't hear it. <laughs> I know. I, I, I get it. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is a great spot. Um, that church right there is a thousand years old. It's the Church of St. Anne's. And this place, uh, let's go to the next picture. I'm going to let Cheryl tell you guys about this because she did a little teaching at this spot. Okay, this is John chapter five talks about when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he went here to the pool of Bethesda and had five porches. Interestingly enough, Bible critics said that's impossible, never could be. Bethesda only had four porches. But when they uncovered this, they found um, five porches. And so what it is, is you've got it, it's like a rectangle with a bridge across the middle separating it actually into two pools. Um, and so there were five porches. This was a place that was taken over. Um, it originally was beautiful, but it was taken over by the maimed and the diseased and the infectious in Jerusalem. And it was a place that the pilgrims, those coming to worship at the temple, would not go. 
it was just a place to be avoided because it was where all the sick people were. And the people here um, believed in mythology, that an angel would come down and stir up the waters and the first person to get in there would be healed. And when Jesus came, he came to a man who had been lying there on the edge on one of the porches for 38 years, just believing this mythology, believing this methodology. This man didn't so much want to be healed as helped. He wanted Jesus to prove his mythology right and to prove his methodology right, but it was wrong. So Jesus just says to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? And and the contrast is, do you want to keep believing these these false um, ideas? And, you know, do you just want to continue in this place or do you really want to be healed? Because healing happens as you obey the word of God, not as you hold on to your mythology and methodology. So the man is healed. Um, He picks up his mat. He leaves this area. The religious elite say, what are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath day? And he says, well, the one that told me to pick it up is the one that healed me. And they say, what's his name? He says, I don't know. Jesus finds him in the temple and says, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Well, I don't think the man liked Jesus telling him that because then he went to the religious elite and said, his name's Jesus. It was Jesus that did this on the Sabbath. So what I find interesting is Jesus singles out one man at this place, probably the most undeserving, most ungrateful man in the whole place. And that's the man he heals and he touches. And I think about the fact that Israel is not a beautiful country in and of itself. Its beauty is in its potential when the Messiah reigns. And they will not realize that potential until they allow Jesus to be king and Messiah. And so even in our lives, Jesus doesn't come to us because we're beautiful, but because we're needy and because of how he can beautify and what he can do in our lives. So for me, it's always inspiring. You know, it's not because I'm you know, the one who can do the most for Jesus, but it's because I'm the one who Jesus um, sees has the greatest need. So when you want Jesus to be close, just get real needy because he cannot resist need. Next. And Cheryl shared that story right there. Next. I was very happy doing it. So this is inside the church of St. Anne's. Now, like we said, this is a thousand-year-old church. It was built during the Crusader period. And um, if you go out and look at the outside of the church in the area, there's bullet holes everywhere because it was a fortress during the the Independence War uh, that people hid out in. The resistance. uh, During during the fighting. The Jewish resistance hid out in here in Uh 1948. And uh, so it's a beautiful, the acoustics are amazing. So it's a beautiful place to go in and just sing. And so that's what's happening here. They're just singing a cappella. Char is leading us in how great thou art. Yeah. Which is, it, it, to me, you know, this is, this is Chuck Smith's grandson, right? His name is Brian Charles, and he's always gone by Char or Charlo or Charles. And in that very spot, my dad stood and led um, all the trips to Israel and how great thou art. And here's his grandson leading all us. And you, this is the interesting thing. Brian and I are outside going, oh, I wonder if they're going to let us sing. And all of a sudden we hear how great thou art. And we walk in and there's our son leading everyone and how great thou art. We're just like, wow, Lord, you are so great. You know, our, our children got saved by grace and grace alone. It wasn't their parents. It was Jesus. 
And so when we see this hyperactive boy, now a pastor, and proclaiming the word of God and singing and worship, we just go, how great thou art. Hmm. All right, next. We're winding down here. Okay, look at these faces. Aren't they happy? These are, these are Muslims. And so hungry we, we, we happen to have a, a really interesting experience. This is our final day. This is last Friday, uh, two days ago. And so on Friday, we go to um, the area of what's called the Via Della Rosa, where you walk through the, you know, the path, supposedly, that Jesus took toward uh, Golgotha. And then you go to the, to the garden tomb and so forth. Um, and normally what happens is we have a bus driver who drives us and then we get out, walk a few yards and we're there. Well, the city was blockaded because uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims, because it's Ramadan and Friday's the day to go to the mosque, they were all coming to go to the mosque on the, what we call the Temple Mount. And so there are 50,000 Muslims that went up to um, the mosque that day. They're not so, allowed to eat or drink yeah. until nightfall. So, so Ramadan is fasting from sunup to sundown every day. No eating, no drinking or anything. So No water, you know, not even drinking I water. I mean, that could, that could kind of get you a little bit irritated. And it's like 90 degrees. And we ended up with a group of 128. We ended up right in the middle of this. And so it was quite, uh, it was a little bit challenging to navigate it. We had three kids with us, so we were making sure we were watching over them. But you know, on the other side of it, we had some really great just encounters with the people as they were going along. One man, him and I began to talk. He was telling me what they were doing, where he'd come from, and you know, going up to the mosque because of Ramadan and so forth. But a very kind uh, person, and many of the ladies, I know Cheryl made it a point to smile at them. You know, these people need the Lord. And that's, you, I just looked at him and you thought, man, these are like sheep without a shepherd. You know, they're so burdened down. And that's the thing in Jerusalem, like I was saying earlier. You've got Islam, which is a false religion. You've got Judaism, which is uh, a false religion, basically. And you've got so much of the Christianity in, in Jerusalem is false. It's not real, genuine you know, true biblical relational Christianity. And you think, Lord, how are these people? I mean, how do you find Jesus in Jerusalem? It's such a, uh, a place of spiritual confusion, but you know, God is at work. But you know, when we look at these people, um, I think sometimes because of geopolitics and things like that, we can look at them the wrong way. Uh, God loves them and they need the savior and we need to look at them like that. So we, we had that experience that, uh, on Friday you know, with we them. We knew that they knew. You know, when they see Americans, they know that they, they figure they're evangelical, they're Christians. So when we're walking through and we're smiling and showing the love of Jesus Christ, just letting it flow out of us towards them, mm. we're setting an example. And they're going to, especially the women, because they have no hope in Islam. You know, they have no hope. Not even, not even these religious men making all these efforts have any guarantee that they're going to make it to heaven. No guarantee at all. We have a guarantee because Jesus Christ died on the cross. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have a guarantee of heaven. They have, no matter how good they are, how hard they try, they can never know. We can know. We're the ones with the love. We're the ones with the salvation. We've got to shine it. We've got to just shine it. And that's what we did. So we're all like smiling. 
You know, and it was interesting because we watched a lot of the women melt and smile back at us. It was like we could tell. And, you know, God's working on their heart. We have some people that minister to um, the Palestinians there. And they know when somebody's been touched by the Lord, they look at them and they say to them, have you had the dream? Because the Lord is speaking individually to a lot of these people. And they're having dreams about John the Baptist, about Jesus. And they don't know, and they don't know where to go to find information. And we have friends that just go up to them, and, and they're looking for this certain, I don't know what it is, certain look. And they'll go up to them, and they'll say, have you had the dream? And they'll be like, yes. And they'll say, do you want to know what that dream means? It's, it's God is at work in a crazy way. All right. Next. Okay, so this is, this is a group. Now, remember I said this is the Via Della Rosa. So this is the, the pathway of suffering for Jesus. Remember, any of you that grew up in Catholicism, you remember the, the stations of the cross. Well, this is where they are. They're the, the 14 stations of the cross here that lead you to the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulcher. So these are Catholic pilgrims making their way to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Yeah, that's not our group. Let's go to the next one. Um, this is our group, and we're at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre here. We're just in the courtyard. Let's go to the next one. And here's a group of, perhaps these are Coptic uh, priests, um, Egyptians. We're not quite sure, maybe Syrian Orthodox or, or uh, some, something. We're not, we didn't get a chance to talk to them, but they were there. They were singing and obviously doing some sort of an interview or something. Uh, let's go to the next one. And, and here's a picture. You can see the crowds, these, these crowds. Now, again, I mean, they're sort of being herded like cattle out to these buses. And, you know, there's police everywhere and loudspeakers and smoke. You can see somebody Someone lit a fire, a fire in, a, in. in the trash can. So it was a little bit crazy. Let's go to the next one. And there's another picture of the pilgrims going up to the mosque. And next... And here's my favorite moment of the trip. So we are in a tunnel. Back in the time of King Hezekiah, Hezekiah knew the Assyrians were threatening to come and he wanted to make sure that they had water in the city and the Assyrians didn't get it. So he diverted the spring of Gihon and he had a tunnel dug under the city. It is a quarter of a mile long it's like a snake tunnel because they started at, at both uh, opposite ends. ends mm-hmm. And then they knew that they, if, you know, they could easily miss each other. So they did a zigzag knowing that at some point they were going to cross over. So that tunnel is pitch black. Uh, we can see it because we have phones with uh, uh, flashes on them there. But I got to tell you, these two boys, Hudson and Judah, um, I was so proud of them. The first time we went... Uh, they wouldn't go through. They were scared. And so the whole trip, Hudson kept telling me, Grandpa, I'm going to Hezekiah's tunnel. I am not going to be a chicken this year. <laughs> and so there he is. Okay. He's in the tunnel. Tell him about the plaque. Tell him what? About oh, the plaque. And in the tunnel. So when they first discovered this tunnel, they found in it a plaque that was put there by the workers. And it actually told the story of Hated Hezekiah. Back to Hezekiah's tunnel when it was... Yeah, it told the story of Hezekiah, told a little bit about how they did what they did. And uh, this, this merchant guy uh, heard about it. So he went in the tunnel tried and he thought it. he was going to take it and make some money on it. But when he tried to pry it off the wall, he broke it. 
And then he was found out by the authorities. He was arrested. And, uh, but the plaque is in the museum in Istanbul today, uh, the plaque that speaks of Hezekiah digging the tunnel. You can read about it in um, both Second uh, Kings and in Second Chronicles as well. Next. And here we are at the garden tomb. So that's the entrance into the tomb right there. People going in to just look inside the tomb. Next. There's, there's nothing in there. It's empty. <laughs> we don't know, the occupant didn't use it very long, just three days out of there. Um, there we are sharing on communion and uh, the resurrection. Next. Now, here's another view of the city of Jerusalem. We've never been to this spot. This was our very last night. And this is an overview of the city from a slightly different angle. So you can get a, a kind of a glimpse at what uh, greater Jerusalem looks like. So obviously with the, the shrine, that's the old city. But then all of that is the surrounding. That's all Jerusalem out there. Next. Here is a plaque that Cheryl saw and wanted to mention. Uh, Cheryl. Um, it's that scripture, and there shall come forth out of the stem of Jesse a branch shall come out of um, its roots. And what you have is you have an olive tree that's dead, but here's this living branch that's coming out, which is, um, as the Bible says, out of Jesse, you know, how the house of David, you know, died, and they weren't, there were no kings anymore until Jesus came, and he's. He's the branch out of the, the dry ground, out of the root of Jesse. So this is actually at the garden tomb. They have little scripture plaques. Um, now there's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and then there's this, what's called the garden tomb. And there's a debate about which is the place that Jesus actually um, had a short residence at. And nobody's really sure. Um, I tend to go with this place because it's so calm and the Holy Sepulchre inside Jerusalem has been fought over. Uh, many people have died. Um, it's been made merchandise over where this place is so calm. And right outside of this place is actually uh, Golgotha where the road to Damascus and the road to Joppa converged. And it would have been the place of public execution. It's the place that they believe Stephen was stoned. And you can actually see a skull in the rocks um, it was where Solomon actually quarried stone um, out of this place. And it, it's the peak of Mount Moriah. So it's, it's um, north of the temple. So it would have been the peak of Moriah. But in order to make the temple, Solomon quarried out this place that later became a main road to Damascus and another one to Joppa. And that's where they began to hold the executions. Um, but it's interesting because... That's the place where um, evangelical Christians believe Jesus was crucified. And a lot of archaeologists believe that that is more likely than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mm. So we like it. It's run by um, Scottish Presbyterians who are very passionate about the resurrected Jesus. And if you're not a believer, they will try to get you to be a believer while you're there in the garden. Um, next. And I think this is our last one. Yes. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, um, as Cheryl mentioned, Mount Moriah, just to refresh your memory, Mount Moriah is the place where Abraham was instructed by God to take Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. And maybe you remember what happened in that story. 
as they're going up Mount Moriah, this place, uh, Isaac says to Abraham, he says, we have the wood, we have the fire, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, the Lord shall provide himself a sacrifice. In the mountain of the Lord, it shall be seen. And that was a prophecy. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And it could be that right there, Abraham saw into the future that God would provide himself as a sacrifice. But that's the place where Jesus was crucified. It's so fascinating. So the whole, when you go on a a trip to Israel, what happens is all the pieces of the puzzle just come together. And it's so amazing to see. And just really quickly in closing, I know we've gone late, but uh, just want to say just two quick things. Uh, One is that you realize that our faith is rooted in history. You can go to these places and just like it says in the Bible, those places are there. And there's evidence that yes, these things happen right at this spot. And so we don't believe cunningly devised fables but we have the witness of uh, history. We have the witness of geography. We have the witness of archaeology. We have all of these different things. And it really just, in a sense, you know, it bolsters your faith in that. But the, the one thing I would want to say here finally is, um, <coughs> of course, going on these trips, part of it is to just have the experience of the land and and to have the blessing of being there together, traveling together, seeing these things together. And yet for us, you know, we're very much interested in what God is doing in places as well. And like I said, it's a, it's a dark place. And, um, one of the things that we try to do is connect with the believers in the country and every single one of the believers that I talk to in the country that I know, they say, you know, pray for us because, we need God to work among us. They have a sense that, that they need to be strengthened as believers in Jesus the Messiah. They need to be stronger in their faith so they can spread the gospel. And they, they long to do that. There's a lot of false teaching. There's a lot of people drift back into legalism. People end up denying the, the deity of Christ. But there's, of course, those faithful ones Um, but we just need to see God working among them. Uh, As I was there in the land, there's a passage in Matthew that really just suddenly uh, clicked with me. And it's a passage that I myself and, and Bible commentaries for that matter have been a bit confused as to, is Jesus talking about his first coming or his second coming? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the disciples. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, Uh, be shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, Uh, be on your guard. He talks about they're going to hand you over to the local councils. They're going to flog you and and so on and so forth. Brother uh, will betray brother to death, father is child and so on. But then it says this, it says, and truly I tell you, you will not have finished going through the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. So when you read that, you're like, okay, wait, is he talking about them And then, or is he talking about the future? I think he's talking about both. Because what I think is that God is preparing. And again, the believers that I know in the country will tell you, I have a friend who's born and raised in Israel. His father was the, he founded the first Messianic congregation in Jerusalem and pastored it. And now he's become the pastor of it. He's 55 years old. He said, I have never seen in my entire life an openness to Jesus as the Messiah like I see today. 
never seen anything like it before. And as we were talking, as I had conversations with different people, I suddenly thought of this passage and I thought, wow, what if God revives his people in the land and they do just what the apostles did and they start going from town to town to town all throughout Israel and they can't even complete the mission before Jesus comes back again. We don't know. But, but the one thing I would say is sometimes our interest in Israel is more geopolitical than anything because of prophecy. And so we know the prophecies and we want to hear what's happening and we hear about the rockets, 650 a day landing shot from Gaza and all. You know, we hear about all of that stuff and sometimes we think about it just in that context. But let's learn to think about it more in the sense of, no, these are people that need the gospel. The Jews need the gospel. (coughs) You can see I picked up something on the trip. (coughs) The Jews need the gospel. The Muslims need the gospel. The Christians, so-called, need the gospel. So let's pray that the Lord will send a great work of his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer. Send your spirit. Do amazing and great things in these days, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.